out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, Jim, we certainly are. Anyway, hello, welcome. This is David Esau. This is the C86 Show. Once again, bringing you the finest in indie pop and much, much more. Sometimes before, sometimes after. Anyway, we love a special guest. This week it is the turn of a member from the Hangman's Beautiful Daughters. Yes, it's going to be the turn of Gordon Dawson, who I spoke to a couple of weeks ago to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy kind of stuff. Life in a squat, life in a band. It's all that and much, much more. This is the interview and this is the first part, well, the only part really, um, where we'd been babbling for a bit, well I had, and dribbling, I was definitely dribbling, um, and talking about, yeah, archiving and nostalgia. This is what old people do in their spare time, and this was Gordon's response. Gordon, it's over to you. Especially that period before, you know, mobile phones and recording everything, you know, so little recorded. Um which is a, one of my only regrets, really, from that period, especially yes. with ambulance station, things like that, that I used to be part of. Uh, yeah. Yes. Well, it is, um, yeah, it is It is kind of interesting because a few, you know, because some of the photographs are, are kind of, you know, they're quite nice me- re- a record, but they're kind of crap pictures. You know, it's like, yeah, know. yeah, the, the photos are all right, but um, it's just that there's no sound recordings or videos or, and also, you know, it just, that blurry memory thing because you especially that period I think everyone was really in the moment more, you know and not thinking about archiving and all that stuff I don't know from my point of view it was it was very in the moment you know? yeah well I guess actually I remember I mean I was you know the 80s were kind of probably my period even though I'm you know I was born in 64 so I can't remember quite a bit the 70s but I suppose it was the 80s that I became you know felt like I was rather than listening to records of my brother's in the 70s, which had sort of been and gone, and I wasn't really part of, though I enjoyed them because I found them kind of fascinating. They didn't, it was the 80s, you know, at the time, you know, a lot of the punk people thought the indie scene was absolute shit, you know, and wimpy and rubbish. And the 60s generation who, you know, there was a few people I knew who'd seen Jimi Hendrix and the Rolling Stones definitely didn't go for the 80s. And it all seemed a bit sort of fey and a bit sort of like it was just, it wasn't going to be... M- m- remembered but when you're young you go to gigs every night you're listening to the John Peel show you're buying the NME you know you think oh this music's amazing I suppose you never think it's going to really last I don't know I I suppose I would to be honest I don't know what I was thinking at the time but you just went to gigs every night if you could just to see these bands you know with 200 other people going wow they're amazing the janitors we love them (laughs) so so that was it really yeah I mean I think there was the the thing about the 60s and the 80s, it was, um, I mean, people just discovered the 60s and the 80s because it was just blanked out in the 90s pretty much. So people our age, I guess, um, I mean, I grew up in the 60s. I mean, I'm, I was like, I remember the Beatles vaguely, you know, I was born in 59. But I didn't really pick up on the 60s at all until the 80s. You know what I mean? It was the first the first retro thing about discovering the past now it's it's kind of all passe the 60s to a lot of people but in the 80s it was a really big thing 
wow, this is amazing music, and how come we haven't heard it? You know I mean? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's kind of well. I, I suppose I realised that I was quite lucky in the sense that well, I don't know if I was lucky, but you know, I could sort of like quickly go back and recap on how popular music started roughly, you know, and rock, you know, you only had to go back a short while, you know, a short few years, didn't you? Um, and sort of think, right, I'm up to date, you know, I've got the sort of, you know, from the first Beatles album, bit of Elvis, bit of, you know, Little Richard, you know, yeah. you can sort of get the sort of recap quickly, do some revision, get the 60s on your belt, 70s, pretty good. And then you're sort of up to speed with the 80s, you know, that's how I vaguely look at it. I've never had this theory before. But I guess if you're born now or you're young, you know, 18 now, trying to go all the way back to the 60s and recap and find out all the you know, ins and outs and watch all the films and sort of read lots of books and hear lots of interviews, it probably would be, what's the point in doing that? But I suppose I grew up and I was sort of desperate wanted to hear all those kind of, any any mention of any band or, or record and I had to go and listen to it because I felt somehow nerdy and, and like I needed to sort of digest it. Which was interesting because every five years I would try to listen to Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys and... The Hangman's Beautiful Daughter. Um, oh, Christ. Really? I don't think so. <laughs> no, not the Hang... Oh, um... Oh, you mean the, the, the Incredible String Band? The Incredible String Band album, The Hangman's yeah, Beautiful yeah, Daughter. Yeah. So I would sort of try to listen to these two classic albums and Trout Mask Replica. You know, it was those three albums that used okay. to always get sort of, you know, when you're younger, you know, they were like, you've got to listen to them, you've got to love them, you know. And I met people in the 60s, oh, you know, The Incredible String Band, amazing, you know. And I'd be going, you know, I just don't really get it. And I didn't really get pet sounds either, to be honest, which is a bad thing to admit. Um, and I still don't really love it. And, you know, Trout Mouse Replica, you know, it's like, well, I prefer his more commercial stuff. But, yeah, so it's kind of funny that those those three albums and your band is called probably named after the Incredible String Band, isn't it? It is. Um, yeah, Dan came up with that name. Uh, but, yeah, going back to the... Um, that whole kind of uh, influence thing about music. I remember. I mean, I was lucky because I had a, I had a brother-in-law who was like a in when I was about ten, eleven, twelve, that kind of period. Who was a real head. You know, I don't know if you remember that terminology. Yes. He used to go around with a great coat and a pile of records under his arm all the time. You know, and he used to just come around and see. You know, uh, my sisters where I lived, obviously. And he used to just whack on these amazing records and stick headphones on me. Listen to this, you know. And it was like things like Can, Tega Mago, uh, which completely blew on. I didn't know what the hell. I thought it was just mind blowing, you know. Just I used to get out drum you know, my mum's knitting needles and drum along with on pillows and things, you know. Uh, yeah, really beautifully influenced. I had a really good. Uh, Influence in that kind of, you know, late 60s, early 70s, just, you know, early Roxy music, things like that. It was really, yeah, very, so I was lucky I had a good input. Um, but it really made me interested in music, I think. I think that was a good start. Yes. Well, I'm, I'm slightly younger than you, but I had an older brother who was seven years older, and he was really, he was that generation who had really got the moment of prog rock. So it was Yes, Genesis, Wishbone, Ash, Barkley, James Harvest. And when I was younger, about 10, I, you know, used to sort of sneak into to his room and listen to these records when he wasn't in because he'd sort of forbidden, forbid me to touch them. So obviously he was sort of a bit, bit interested and curious. So I sort of digested all that work in the mid-70s, you know, with great enthusiasm like King Arthur and, the, you know, Journey to the Centre of the Earth and various solo, you know, other 
albums yeah. topographic ocean and close to the edge and then you know as you get older you start thinking this is a bit shit i need to listen to well Pine. you know it's funny because like actually very early yes the first album i really liked which was quite like the beatles actually but you know i was again you know under a teen practically i was you know pre-teen and i was digesting a lot of that stuff like the first genesis record thing so I really did like that stuff at the time, but they just got so overblown. Yes. They just, yeah, it lost all its impetus. But initially it was good stuff. Yes, um, absolutely. And coming then to your sort of musical world. So in the 80s, as, as we all got very excited and you had that post-punk period, and then sort of I put in indie pop down between the ages of uh, the years of 83 to 87, which was basically the years of the Smiths, you sort of came along kind of towards the latter half. So did you, what were you doing in the early 80s, without asking such a personal question? <laughs> um, uh, a lot of drugs. <laughs> you know, I've had a real head in this kind of period when I was late teen. Um, yeah, quite a bad boy, really. Um, just having fun. Yeah, I wasn't actually, I was, you know, I was always doing my own kind of art thing a little bit and writing, but I didn't do any music properly until I used to, you know, sit at home playing through pedals and everything but I didn't I mean it was the Hangman's of the first band that I was in and uh, but just before the Hangman's we did a lot of I mean I squatted for about eight years in London um, it was really easy to squat when I first came to London so we had some really amazing squats and um, the last one before it all kind of broke down was the ambulance station which you might have heard of which was a huge squat that was about eight of us living there. And uh, we used to put on bands regularly. Um, a lot of the uh, the bands that, you know, you know that kind of pre-Britpop era, Jesus and Mary Chain, TVPs, Dentists, all the bands we really liked. Right. And, um, yeah, so it had quite a, a, a marker for a really good venue in London and it was completely illegal and open all night and you know we project films you know it was very cheap to get in so it was a real kind of alternative it was a bit like a big Berlin squat or something you know yes because I sort of interviewed a few people who'd sort of come from like that and had the guy from um, the Bambi Slam and various Australian musicians and when they sort of or the guy from Bambi Slam had come from Canada I think and so oh, when yes. they so the, when they landed in dear old UK uh, in London you, you know they all mentioned living in squats so I guess you would have probably sort of run into some of those characters yeah it was a bit of a um, there was other <clears throat> when we did the ambulance station there was a a bit of a wave of big squats following it actually like the fire station i mean it was actually a fire station but i don't know what it's called the ambulance station but there was a big there was a bit of a wave of big squats around that time following us actually i think but um yeah it was uh, really it was glc of course you know it was a really liberal london was amazingly liberal then and um actually that the ambulance station got offered a £60,000 grant to do it formally, you know. Um, and that was John McDonnell, <laughs> actually, he was head of GLC uh, Finance then. So, yeah, and then just as we were waiting it to come through the door, the grant, because we formed a co-op and everything, we did it all quite formal. 
we got an that Thatcher disbanded GLC and consequently put an end to squatting pretty rapidly. Um, so, well, you know, we got we got evicted basically instead of getting a sixty thousand pound grant to continue. So that was a bit of a drag, and that was kind of the end of the whole era. I think the late eighties. Just I think there was squatting still going on, but. I think up to the, you know, around about the mid eighties was the end of the golden era of squatting in London. Yes, um, but there were good times, definitely. <clears throat> um, yeah, it was uh, really exciting. Yes, and along alongside that, there was you know the small venues like Room at the Top and the Falcon. Uh, you know, small little indie venues with great bands in. You know, like obviously TVPs. Love, all these bands that we were putting on at the ambulance station, um, June Brides, there's many of them, I can't recall them all, but uh, um, yeah, we put Jesus Mary Chain's first gig on at the ambulance station, first London gig, that was huge success, really good fun, pretty wild. I used to project films and slides and everything, and it was all kind of a bit... Um, a bit like Andy Warhol's plastic, exploding plastic and never or something, you know? Yes, well, absolutely. And because and, what I noticed with quite a lot of bands at that period, especially the early 80s, most of them, well, I say most of them, a lot of them were kind of claiming unemployment. But there was also those other schemes like the, was it Job Seekers Alliance or Enterprise Alliance scheme where you had to... Oh, yeah, so, yeah, I was on that. You, you, <laughs> you had to sort of... You had to yeah. sort of um, show that you had a thousand pound in your bank account, which I was always a bit like, yeah. "How did you manage to do that if you were unemployed?" But, uh, but they, I, they, but most they, people somehow sort of went, "Oh, look, I've got a thousand pounds." I don't yeah. know. I can't remember that bit, but I didn't have any money. That's for sure. But uh, <laughs> I, no, that was later. No, no, I was thinking about the. the yeah, I got on a tops, a tops course actually. You remember tops? Yes, we well, remember the tops courses. They were yeah, which was great because you you taught. I mean, I did carpentry. So I'm like, you know, carpenter now. But. Well, join a carpenter, but that was you know you got a free toolkit and you got like uh, about equivalent of three times your doll being taught you know carpentry and everything so it was a no brainer really to do it. Yes. Uh, so, so when then, yeah, carry on. And I was going to say so that was that sort of that eighties period where we were all sort of um, getting angsty about sort of Thatcher and and sort of you know it was mm. a very SWP and eating TVP and drinking barley cup. But then you, you, so were you interested in forming a band during the, that period or were you just kind of in, you know, sort of... Well, actually, now I remember I did actually form a band. We had a band with um, a good friend, a silly good friend, Alvin Carter, who we did the, the ambulance station together, the band song that we did put on there. It was me and him, really. Um, and we were both kind of like more, you know, quirky mods, not normal mods or something, you know, kind of a bit psychedelic. And um, so we got a little band together called, God, I can't remember the name of it now. They're a really crap name, something like the Colour Coalition or something. And we, yeah, so that was actually the first band I was in with him. Um, but he, he was actually in the Looking Glass. So he was in the Hangman's Beautiful Daughters originally, Alvin Carter. Um, and he left early on to form the Looking Glass, who are also on Dream World, actually. I don't know if you've heard of them. No. The Looking... Yeah, so we, we ended up both on Dan's label um, for a little while. Um, 
So yeah, that was. I mean, no, before that, I mean, you know, since the Hangman's, I've been yeah, I've, I had like a, a long period of not doing music, basically. But, yes. Um, so look, the, the the Dream World Records that was quite a label because I spoke to the guy who was um, the main man in. Oh uh, God, that that fantastic band all the way from Sheffield. Yes, One Thousand Violins. Oh yeah, yeah, I knew that. Yeah. Who would sort of come, who would come down to London and stand with, stay with Dan? He was often the other side of the door, so they never really saw him. So, how did you cope with your relationship with Dan? Well, yeah, I mean, I really, I mean, I really, um, I mean, my initial thing about TVPs and Dan was, I just was shocked when I first came to London in nineteen eighty. 1979 or something I was um just shot you know looking through the records in rough trade and saw that first album by TVPs you know not knowing anything about it, just the you know the one with Steve and Twiggy on the cover well that's a really interesting cover it's like color heart you know anyway so I bought it you know just said just give it a spin and it was fucking amazing it was like you know it, I just was in love with I thought it was amazing you know that, that first album so um, I kind of sort sort them out a bit, and um, it synchronised with the with the um, ambulance station. And so they played their they were kind of a regular band there because you know we got on really well. Um, so yeah, I, re- I had a deep respect for Dan, brilliant songwriter. Um, yeah, he's uh, he was. I mean, we toured with them a couple of times, and so I was and I squatted with Dan actually a couple of times as well. So. We, I was kind of, you know, quite close. But, you know, he's, he, Dan's got a bit of a distant thing. It's quite hard to get really close to. But I guess I'm a bit like that too. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I respected him. We were good peers, really. And uh, but he was very, very talented guy, you know. He's, I remember him kind of writing songs straight out. Because we, in the room next to me in a squat we had, I'd hear him just, just strumming a song and, you know, a few changes here and there, but and, and just write a song basically, pretty much straight out. I was really impressed with that. Yes, well, absolutely. And then, so when did you decide you're going to be a band? Well, yeah, the story about the beginning uh, was um, Emily, who was living with Dan at the time, and uh, Sandy, who was an old friend of Dan. She'd known Dan since the seventies, I think. Um, anyway, th- those two came round, came to the ambulance station one morning after a gig, um, and I was just learning to play drums on one of the drum kits that the bands left behind. The, one of the bands left behind, you know, because you, you could just make any noise you wanted and everything. So I'd be up all night drumming on the band on the kits that the bands left behind. And I remember them turning up and seeing me drumming and saying, "Oh, do you want to drum in our band?" Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, I didn't know they were connected with Dan, but when I found that out, it was, yeah, no brainer, you know. So, um, yeah, so that, uh, so I started on drums myself, um, and and Alvin, yeah, jumped in on bass, and yeah, I got murky memories about the beginnings. We did a few gigs together, then Alvin left, but. Um, so yeah, the, the beginning of it was basically that. I was, you know, sent it around the ambulance station, really. Yeah. And Dan, um, you know, I mean, it was Dan's kind of idea, I think. To, uh, it wasn't like we were Dan's band, but it, you know, he he wanted to promote us, and 
he was really interested in us and you know he kind of was a bit of a kernel about getting it together and uh he produced you know inverted commas a lot of the records and and gave us some songs you know so that was essentially beginnings yes um, so when did when did the when did you say actually i've got the name this is it we're on a mission well, like I say, Dan came up with a name. I think it was kind of, it was, yeah, Emily was a big driving force, Emily and Sandy. And I was just going along with it a bit to begin with. You know, I didn't really know what it was, you know, it was, yeah, I'm up for it, you know. Kind of, and I had quite a crude drumming style. But um, I knew that I was a guitarist, so I just, it wasn't. But then I kind of moved over to guitar, which is my main thing. And I had a 12-string electric and that really fitted more, you know, so I think we kind of, and I was writing songs a bit more too. So yeah, it became more of a, it became more interesting to me when I had some proper role in the band, I think. Yes. And obviously at that stage, I mean, had you been sort of, you must have been following the indie scene. So when you started to sort of like bring it together, a lot of those indie bands like the June Brides and, yeah, yeah, no, the Wolfhounds. They were sort of getting to that point where they, they were starting to sort of fall apart and the Smiths broke up in 87. So were you thinking, oh, actually things are starting to change? Because speaking to a lot of the bands from that period, you know, most bands have about five years, but the one thing that knocked them out was kind of there's a new musical scene that starts to happen. And then different drugs. There were different drugs in the, the latter part of the 80s, the sort of uh, ecstasy scenes and the dance music scene. So I just wondered how you were sort of yeah. coping with the sort of um, mm. going, going, no. from, going from dope to acid. Well, yeah, we, we just, I was in speed more than anything anyway. But, um, and yeah, I'd taken acid quite a bit. But um, no, I was, just wasn't thinking about anything else, to be honest. We were just doing our own thing. It wasn't like, oh, we're not part of the trend or anything. You know, it was... We really weren't like that. It was very much we're doing our own thing, you know, on our own terms and uh, not obsessed about, I mean, you know, we were underachievers, let's face it. So we weren't like screaming to fit into some scene or anything. So, um, no, we weren't really interested in adapting to any scene. We were just doing our own thing, having a good time. But you did have a definite image, didn't you? And a different look, a definite yeah, look. Yeah, that, yeah, it's true. That's because we were into that. You know, that's, that was entirely what we were into. So it was like, totally authentic. We were completely into the 60s, um, unashamedly, at that period. Uh, had, you know, loved all the, all the, um, yeah, the Nuggets albums and everything. And, uh, you know, the misunderstood, the action, the creation, all that stuff. You know, it was brilliant. So it was an authentic love of that music and it wasn't contrived you know the hangmans were not at all contrived so yes we were authentically doing their thing that we wanted to do so yeah it was just like take it or leave it you know and when you know because obviously you've got this new compilation that's just come out which is kind of featuring is it 15 tracks from this sort of back catalogue did you um did was that tricky to bring that to get together and find the masters and all that kind of malarkey well, we, yeah, it was pretty tricky because we didn't have the masters. Um, so it came off vinyl, um, but, you know, with a great engineer, who, you know, great remastering engineer. So he did a really good job on that. Plus there was two tracks that we 
uh, well, the, the end of the hangman's, we were just starting to actually, there was, we were starting to get more serious towards the end. And, uh, and, you, but we ran out of money and there was, fell out with Dan, Emily fell out with Dan and there wasn't money there. To, so we were, we recorded a, we were just about to record an EP and we put it down, but just like backing, you know, uh, monitor mixes and then there was no money to finish it. So we literally had to just pay them off and take away the, these crappy cassette tapes that we had as monitor mixes. And we didn't even get any other tapes from them. So, you know, I had to really work on those, those really shit, muddy cassette tapes for the last two tracks on the album. And, and add a bit to them and, you know, do a bit of EQ work. I mean, I do a bit of product, you know, I'm pretty good on logic. So, um, yeah, so we kind of recovered it. And then the master and engineer polished them beautifully on the EQ touch. So, yeah, they're, they're, considering what they were originally, they're pretty good, those last two on the album. Yes, and these are the tracks which are titled uh, King of Sweden and If It Means Anything. Yeah, these are two. So, did it feel strange? Because, because obviously, these were recorded only thirty-two years ago. I mean, did it feel strange, kind of going back and listening to them again? Yeah, yeah. It's a bit. The whole thing's a bit of a weird uh, retrospective. Yeah, it's been good picking up with the old people in the band. I'm not usually one to look back at things, but because um, I'm plowing ahead with new stuff now and my own thing, but it's been good. You know, it's it's good to kind of get it some recognition that it deserves actually because we, we have some really good songs uh so yeah i think it's gonna and then this came from ian alcock from optic nerve who's a really good guy and he's been do you know ian you know optic nerve recording yes that up in preston land isn't it yeah yeah he's really good he's just he's a real affectionate from bands from that period and not necessarily big bands from that period you know so he's He's got like he's pretty much our age, and he, yeah, he, uh, you know, he was interested in doing a, a, a Hangman's re-release. Um, so yeah, we kind of went for it, and I had the job of putting it all together because everyone's all over the world now. So I'm the kind of one that's more, you know, yeah, I, I got, you know, I help pull it together more than anyone, I guess, and um, but with everyone else's help. So it's been quite a, quite a lot, lot more work than I thought, to be honest. Yeah. Because um, there's a 12-page booklet in it with loads of photos. And I got Jow to do, uh, you know, Jow had... No. He was in the Swell Maps and the TV personalities. Oh. Uh, he's an old friend from that day still. Um, uh, so, yeah, he did the sleeve note. Uh, so there's going to be a big booklet and you know loads of photos because we had quite a lot of photos. So it's a, yeah, it's going to be a real worth buying if anyone's interested in the band for that reason. As much as anything, there's going to be a serious, you know, twelve by twelve, twelve page booklet full of all our history, all our pictures, and most of them. So yeah, uh, it's going to be a good little legacy thing, I think, for the band, which it deserves. Well, absolutely. And then so. So just briefly, without giving too much away, spoiler alert, the mm. band lasted, did it last into the into the 90s or did it not quite get that far? Yeah, it didn't quite get that far. I mean, I think the, the time span is, they, 
about late 85 to 89, I think. That's pretty much it. Yes. Uh, the, the bulk, the, yeah, it was mostly 87. I think that was the strongest year, 86, 87. Yeah, which I sometimes put down as the best year of music. There was a lot of good albums that year if you sort of look back and and, um, and it was that was certainly a definite moment. So then because it was the four of you, Emily, Gordon, Phil and Sandy, I mean, did um, how did that dynamic sort of pan out as as the band progressed and you sort of because. Well, it was Ray also who's the drummer. I mean, the thing is, we had a lot of different members. Um, The. the Core members, me, Emily, uh, Sandy, you know, the others were, we had Phil from, he played in for quite a while, played bass for quite a while, you know, Phil, he was in Felt, um, Servants, actually he's been in a lot of bands, Phil, Phil King, um, and Jesus and Mary chain at the moment, he's playing bass for them. Uh, on drums, God, the list is endless, but they were quite short-lived, a lot of the drummers. But Ray, Phil Pot, he's the main kind of drummer, actually. Um, so he stayed with us to the end, and he's in UK Decay now. He drums for UK Decay. Excellent. Um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd say the core of the band was um, me, Emily, Sandy, Ray, Phil. I mean, that's really the essence. But there's many other people, well, quite a few other people, especially in the rhythm section. Um, yeah. And you did, and you did tour quite a lot, didn't you? Well, we toured Germany a couple of times. We toured Europe a couple of times with the TVPs. We, I mean, we were kind of the TVP support band really for quite a long time. Um, from yeah, eighty-seven, eighty-eight time period, eighty-six bit. It's, yeah, for those, we were kind of the main support band for the TVPs, I think, in that period. Because, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, Emily was close to Dan. And, yeah, I mean, we were kind of, Dan, we were on Dreamworld. We Dan was writing a lot of our songs, producing our music. So, yeah, we were quite tied to the TVPs and good friends. So, um, kind of wherever they played, we were playing a bit. It was a bit like that. Yes. Uh, so Germany and and um, but we did a couple of things outside on our own, like Nor- Norway, some other festival in Europe. But I think Europe was the, the biggest. You know, we've played more in Europe than than London, actually. I think, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you were on a quite a obscure German label for. a your main release or your yeah both of your releases weren't you constrict no uh, well they re- they you know um licensed the the dream world releases basically so yeah they d- redistribute it in germany constrictor right all makes sense now doesn't it and, and also and also um in america um <clears throat> uh vox records um God, i can't remember his name now Quite a big guy in in California. He he put us out in California on Bomp. Okay, yes, I think I once had an Iggy Pop single which was on Give Me Some Skin on that label. Yeah, I mean he he oh, what was his name? Um, it's gone. Oh, Greg Shaw. He, I mean he, Greg Shaw. He's been around since the 
late 60s. He's quite a known person over there. He's dead now, actually. But he came over to Britain and to London and was really interested in a few bands. Spaceman 3. Um, well, we were one of them anyway. And he, so he kind of licensed our music to release over that. Mm. That was good. So then, so how did the band eventually call it a day? What, what was, was there a moment? No, there wasn't any specific moment. It wasn't, I mean, you know, to be honest, my memory is that, which is quite often the case in my life anyway, you don't, you know, it's over. It wasn't like that. It was just kind of, it fizzled a bit with the simple fact that we had no money. You know, the whole um, relationship with Dreamworld had fizzled a bit because Dan, I think, you know, a lot to do with Emily and Dan not getting on and, 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 you know, Dan had a notorious thing about not being great with money. And, yeah, so it just kind of fizzled out. I mean, no, no one had any money. We were all in the dole. That wasn't like we could support it ourselves. And uh, we were young. We didn't have that kind of sense of self-promotion so much. Um, so, yeah, essentially we ran out of money. And it just kind of... We, got, we were into our own things a bit as well. So, I mean, you know... Right, uh, Phil was actually Phil had left at that point, but um, yeah, I mean, you know, I went, I was getting into art. I mean, it wasn't we'd never, in some ways, we didn't take it serious enough, you know. So it was just kind of whatever, and just got on with doing our own thing. I was doing quite a lot of art then, so I went to art school, and it, it never felt like it was a formal ending. Yes, you didn't, you didn't sort of just go to the pub and say, should we just call it the day no I don't that, no that didn't happen actually it's probably, I don't think anyone thinks that so when was the last time you saw the you know like Emily and Sandy because they, they the, you, you you three would seem to be the key people especially in the photographs yeah um god uh, well I bumped into Emily a few times in the 90s um but I mean that getting this album together has brought us all together well brought us together um Emily's a bit removed from the whole thing a bit. I mean, she's kind of turned her back on the whole music thing pretty much. So she's not so good at interacting with. I mean, I speak to her, but she's you know not that not that upbeat about it all really. Uh, yeah, I've been communicating well with Sandy and Phil and Ray, so that's been good. You know, yeah, we've reconnected after a long time, and I think we all. Glad of that, yeah. So it's good. Yes, and uh, and with the release of the album, which I think is is it on in March that the actual compilation? yeah March well March twenty seventh, but it's pre release. You can buy it. You know, you can pre order. Yes. So, is there any plans of sort of having a, a launch? I'm not talking about reunion particularly, but sort of a mm. an evening of of sort of a meet and greet almost with sort of you know. Well, it'd be difficult because we're all over the world. I mean, um, uh, Sandy's in Las Vegas. Bill's in Portugal. Emily's somewhere north of the M25. Ray's in Oxford. So, in terms of getting everyone together, that, that's not going to happen really. But um, I think we'll, we'll just. You know, we'll we'll meet up a bit, bit by bit, and reforming is pretty much out of the question. You know, but uh, yes, but yeah, you know, we'll we'll stay in touch. I think I think it's uh, it's revigorated a communication thing. Yes, Um, and has it felt kind of um, 
Because obviously, as you said, Emily's not really sort of interested, but that, has it been kind of a, a bizarre process? Because you've obviously, did you just, you know, one day get a, a sort of an email or phone call from Optic? Well, Sandy was the one, because I'd been a bit out of touch with those days. I've, I've been doing my own music thing with the band, with the partner called Viralux. I mean, I've got a thing going at the moment, Viralux. It's called Viralux. My new, my recent, actually, it's not that recent, it's 10 years which isn't this kind of art-based, it's like, uh, what can I describe it? It's um, it's, uh, it's kind of like melodic, like electric pop noise or something, you know. Um, but it, it's, you know, with Trish Lyons, um, and this has been going on for 10 years, so a lot of my creative energies musically have been going into Viralux, which is kind of quite important to me. And, uh, yeah, I really like it. Uh, so we've done quite a bit of stuff, but so you know, and obviously Phil's got a lot of stuff, his own stuff going on, and Sandy's a, a mother. Um, she's, uh, you know, um, do you remember the Steps? The band the Steps. The Steps, probably not. But they're an American band. Lazzy Fairs. <laughs> it's John Fallon. So she kind of ended up marrying John Fallon and being a parent, and I think she's quite into the music thing. But I'm still uh, via her, you know, um, via John Fallon and Laissez Faire's, which are quite successful. Um, but um, and Ray obviously has his own thing, and everyone's working, of course. You know, that aeration. You know, we're not like on the dole anymore. Yeah. So we've got our own lives, but um, it's not like. Yeah, uh, we've got our own thing. So th this is a good like recovery of the of the past and uh, giving it the the worth it deserves because it didn't really get that much attention at the time. No, I you mean, and, and after all this all this time, I mean, obviously you probably don't get that many royalty checks. But will will this release will eventually you say, God, we've got six, most people go, oh, we got sixty pounds when that was, and we had to divide it amongst the band. So I just wondered if because that's that sort of side of the industry is kind of, I mean, I know it's a dirty word, industry, but you know, it's kind of an odd one, isn't it? That you know, where, what happens to all this, these the occasional royalty checks? Yeah, well, to be honest, I never got a penny from <laughs> including writing some of the songs. But I don't think anyone did really. I mean, Dan's management of bands was notoriously questionable. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, but it, then again, you know, he did put a lot, uh, quite a bit into it. I mean, yeah. you know, it, it takes money to get it all together. But I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't such a big issue for us because we weren't selling that many, you know what I mean? So we didn't expect any comeback. But um, it... I mean, Emily was a bit upset about the whole financial thing with Dan, but I, I don't really want to go into that because I don't. It's a debate. It's not debating. You know what I mean? Yes. So, but no, I mean, I didn't. It, it wasn't done as a moneymaker in the first place. Anyway, it was not really expected. I didn't. It wasn't like let's make some money, let's get a band together. You know, it was never the, never the point of it. Um, and it still isn't for me. I mean, art doesn't really equate to money necessarily. It's great when it does, but. It's not the driving force. So, yeah, it, 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 there wasn't really disappointments about money or anything because I didn't expect it anyway. So, I mean, if we were, if we were selling like 10,000 albums, then I'd start thinking, where's the money, you know? But we weren't anyway, you know, we didn't sell that many. No. And so, um, 
I was just going to say, how long did it take before you sort of started to have another or the next musical adventure? Well, that, I just kind of left musical, well, pretty much left it alone for about 10 years after the Hangman's. Because I did, I went to, I got into fine art, went to, you know, did a fine art degree in the postgrad and everything. Got into fine art video, time-based art video, you know, making videos and, um, yeah, which I'm still doing. So, but I met, um, I met a really interesting woman in around about 2000, um, Trish Lyons, who I've mentioned before, who, you heard interesting me. I was just, I heard her singing. I said, why don't you come around and maybe I'll dust down the old guitar and I'll have a jam. I said, okay. And, uh, and then we had real trepidation about it, but she came, she'd never sung before, you know, in the, you know, formally. And she came around and I had everything, you know, uh, let's do it anyway. I mean, you know, and it was fucking magical, you know. It just in, it was instant compositions. It was we really inspired each other. So yeah, I mean, I was that. Um, we that was quite, that was magical. I mean, early Virolux and still Virolux is the strongest thing to me, really, that I've done. I think. I mean, it's really good. So you can you can look that up. V I R A L U X. We just got some out on Bandcamp. Um, no, I mean we do quite a lot. Of it. It's kind of we're both artists, so we come from it from an art point of view, really, from like art, video, performance, playing a lot of galleries and things like that. Um, and it's it's good music, you know. It's not just art, sound art or anything. It's actually good music. I say myself, but Fine. no, I take my hat off to it. And she's a brilliant singer. She improvises a lot of her vocals. So yeah, there's some connection to Hangman's in the sound, but that obviously because it's come from me. Um, but um, yeah, so that's kind of been the strongest thing I've been into musically over the last ten years. But there was a bit of a gap in the eight in the nineties. I didn't do hardly any music. I was doing more video and time based art. Fantastic. Well, I guess this has come at such a great time to have have sort of your archive because because having spoke to quite a few bands who actually never got an album out, but they just put out a load of singles and a few flexies, and then sort of the band split mainly because of probably more, if anything, just a lack of progress and total lack of money. And then so often have said, God, I just wish someone would put out the record, you know, just like a compilation with some nice sleeve notes, but knowing that. You know, when you do these projects, it sounds good, you know, at half ten at night when you've had a few drinks. But the actual yeah. work, the work involved is that actually to see it through and have it completed is quite a lot. And you need a person who's got that kind of drive to do it from the you know start to the finish. So having somebody like uh, this label optic. Yeah, definitely. it it is all about that having a label. I mean, Virolux don't have a label, so we've done everything on, or we've made our own label, Love How Muse. But we, you know, we, we haven't been able to afford PR. Well, we haven't had PR or anything, so it's all been just. And we have like a cult kind of bunch of people that come to our gigs at galleries and things. But in order to make money and break through and start getting sales, you need PR and you need, a, you know, a respected label a bit behind you. And uh, thankfully for Hangman's, this has come through with Optic Nerve. I mean, they're great. 
got really good PR. Yeah. So, yeah, it's really, so it's almost impossible to just do it on your own, just with social media posting and things. You know, it just, well, it's almost impossible to, in some ways, I've always thought, you know, it doesn't really matter. As long as you get one or two people that really get it, that's good enough. But it comes to the point where actually you want you want more than just one, you know, about 50 people that really like you. You want to, it, deserve, it deserves more exposure. It's better than a lot of stuff out there, you know, and I, I believe that with Viralux and I, and I believe that with Hangman's, you know, so. Yes. It, but you need you do need you need someone else to take care of that for you. You can't self promote. It doesn't work. It's too hard. You're too close to the product, aren't you? You're too, too close. But to it the... just it doesn't work. Listen to my album. You know, it, it just you know you need someone else to do it, and that costs money. I mean, it was always like that anyway. You know, it's like these called pushers in the eighties, didn't they? You know, get you on Radio One. You pay, I don't know, about hundred quid to get a slot on. Which yeah. is actually one of one of the the first track on side two, the intro to they fell for words like love, is um, a, a prime time radio want we, you know, recorded it, um, an intro to being played on prime time radio one, which for us was huge, uh, something like Simon Mayo or something, but that came back through a pusher and it cost you know it's like a mafia thing you know, that cost. I think it was about 40 quid at the time or something, which is about 200 quid now for one play on Radio 1 Prime. It's really like that, you know, and it's still like that, even more so now, you know. It's um, unless, you know, unless you're gigging a lot. Yes. And uh, exposing yourself more. It's and Viralogs don't gig a lot, you know. We're, we're kind of a quite studio-based and, art, you know, gallery gigs and things like that, you know, so... It's hard to break away from your own little closet of what you're doing and, and to get it out there. It, it's always been a problem. I mean, so many people think that. Yeah. You know. So just lastly, what would what would you say? Because you're you've such a varied background from your early years and the squat years and the music and art. What would you say to a, a sort of an eighteen year old self starting out? You know, if you could say one kind of oh by the way matey i would just take this on board but you can ignore this advice you know just that moment that you you know, just that wisdom that you've built up over the decades yeah. uh, that's, yeah. uh i mean you know i don't know but yeah i wouldn't necessarily say anything you know i mean okay good but i've got no regrets about anything i did and i, I know that i could have done things better you know but it's through doing things that you learn, you know, or, or not doing things that you learn. So, and you can't just be told to do things. Uh, and it's a good point, though. Um, well, you know, I've, I've always been a bit of an underachiever, really, I think, for what I can do. But um, that doesn't mean I could tell myself be more of an achiever than an underachiever, because I'd ignore that at that age. You know? <laughs> yes. Awesome. I don't know, you know, a bit less drugs. I don't know, yeah, blah blah blah. No real, I'm very, yeah, I can't think of anything offhand to be honest. Yes, um, well, it was interesting because I was talking to Martin Newell this week, and he he'd done loads of kind of albums, especially in the eighties. I think he was bringing out almost one out a year. And he, I suppose, what he 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 was sort of saying at the end was that 
Well, I suppose he didn't really make any money doing music, but it kind of led to other things and that led to other talents. And I suppose, you well, know, yeah, exactly. all the because all, all the stuff you've done from the squat stuff to the sort of gigs, you know, putting on events and stuff like that to sort of actually organizing a band and learning to play instruments, it's sort of it all sort of helps develop where you are now. And of course, yeah, absolutely, yeah. It all kind of, yeah, nothing is kind of wasted particularly. So um, Yeah, I think it's dangerous to get into that kind of wish I'd done that thing, you know, just, just not relevant. I mean, it's like a parallel universe, you might be different, but uh, it's like that, it's like, um, it's like that book by Spensky, uh, The Strange Life of... I've, I can't remember the title exactly, but it, it's about, you know, do you know Gurdjieff? You know, that philosopher? That, um, anyway, it, it, he he goes to a seer and says, I wish to change my life. You know, I wish to go back and change my life and go back and change things. And, and the master says, are you sure? He says, yes, yes, I wish to go back. I wish to go back. And then he, he, and then he wakes up in a boarding school in a bed did I have a dream? And he's he's haunted by this thing. He's reliving his life, thinking, I think I'm trying to change it. But this, his whole life repeats exactly the same as it was. You know? um, th- there's more poignant points to that book, which I can't remember, but I read it a long time ago. But it's kind of the, the main point of it is the, the concept of regret is not really the point. You know, it's um, you just got to get on and be conscious of. Yeah, be in the present about what you're doing and, you know, respect what you've done rather than, you know, self-flagellate what you could have done, maybe. Yes. Well, I guess actually from that point, I suppose it's like when you look back and you see yourself repeating a slight, you, you, you sort of, something that repeats itself and you don't learn until one day you think, oh, God, I need to do, you know, it's almost like without oh, yeah. sounding yeah. like, you know, like... Completely well, that's therapy but, thing. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Well, I, yeah, I suppose it is therapy, but it's a bit like you know, God sort of giving you another situation which is very similar to the previous ones you've had that you make the same mistake, and then one day you think, actually, I'm going to tackle this situation differently, and then you think, oh, fuck, I now realise what I should have done back then. But there's no point regretting it. But you realise that it took more than you know three or four times. Yeah, I don't, for me, it doesn't really, I don't think it comes just like a flash of revelation at my age. It's just a gradual drip kind of teaching, you know, from self-reflection. But it's not like some great flash of, okay, I know now, everything's changed. I'm about to bed the next day. But be wary of that kind of stuff, you know. Yes. It's just a gradual, I mean, gra- I'm a gradualist these days more. But I used to be quite, a, quite an anarchist, really. I used to be quite militant. Well, it was it was that period, wasn't it? We were very yeah. sort of we were very angsty. It was all very sure. sort of you know revolution, socialist workers' party, anarchism. Well, party. it was anarchism actually. It wasn't. Like, I wasn't apolitical. I was apolitical at that time. I was kind of quite you know. I mean, true anarchism with quite hard belief in it all. You know, golden and proud and over idealistic, if you, in a sense. But it's still an essence of my political beliefs, you know, the essence of anarchy in its truest sense. Yes, I know. And then one day you just think, God, I need a bed. I don't need a mattress on the floor. Well, that that, that doesn't equate with anarchy, but, (laughs) yeah, let's not get too political. But, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm talking, you know, Noam Chomsky's an anarchist. 
Um, it, it's a it's a very advanced concept of politics, which um, it's kind of like a very communal based system. But uh, that'll take a while to come to fruition. I think it will eventually. It's just kind of slow decay of the capitalist thing and everything, which is like, uh, I mean, in a sense, we're like in the, the teenage years as a human race, I think, in that kind of arrogant teenage year period. And uh, if we survive, it would be potentially quite beautiful. Yes. But at the moment, this is a nightmare, of course. But, but in a way, you need a nightmare to 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 develop from, you know. So I tend to, I'm trying to be positive about it all. I know. It's hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's so tricky. But, um, yes. Anyway, look, this has been fantastic. Well, thank you again, you know, for giving me the time for this. So I managed to sort of yes. get this sorted. And, and just it's just brilliant. And I have to say, I do love a bit of archiving. So people, are, there's a few other little small record labels, one in Berlin, one in New York, and then obviously this one up north, Optic Nerve. So I'm sort of, I'm so grateful to these guys because they, they seem to sort of track down the most obscure indie bands that yeah. hardly anybody knows and puts out these beautiful, lovely, lovely um, collected uh, collections, compilations. And um, yes, and for us nerdy little indie kids, it's like, oh, thank you very much. It's but, true. I mean, uh, Optic Nerve are real, um, yeah, it's got a real, rever a real um, reverence to you know, yeah, he's a really good guy. I think he's done a really good job. It's a labour of love for him. I think it's not a money making thing. So, yeah. yes, I know these things are always like that. I guess. Quite yeah. Oh well, look, Gordon, this has been brilliant. Well, thank you ever so much for your time. Okay, thanks, Dave. Yeah. Uh, and uh, when I put it out, I'll probably I'll spam it over the internet. And um, yes, and you can always link it to your Facebook page. Yay. Okay, well, internet, actually, actually I've got um, cream guillotine, I've got, I've got, I've got, I do art on internet more, but uh, cream guillotine, <laughs> that's my internet label. Ah. Does that, is one able to find all your other musical combos? Well, actually, I, I think, well, Instagram, Instagram seems to be more the place these days, but um, yeah, well, Virolux have got an Instagram page, Um that's uh, V-I-R-A-L-U-X um, with links on there to other things. And, ah, this is handy. And also on Bandcamp. Um, but, uh, yeah, my own things, are, I, I mean, I'm doing collage uh, at the moment, you know, quite good, sophisticated collage, which you like. Um, and that's cream guillotine, one word, on Instagram. But that's enough self-promotion. Yes. Um, <laughs> well, no, no, it's good. But it's good. It's good. But basically, if yeah. you find if you find uh, the band on uh, Instagram, it will all be there. Oh, Instagram. Yeah, we just better to get that together. Actually, I think, uh, um, I think Sandy's going to get that together. But Hangman's Beautiful Daughters are on Facebook, so there's a yeah, that's a connection. Yeah. Got it. Okay, I can find it. I've seen it. This is good. Okay. I will be. Right. I, will, I will now be stalking the internet for links. Okay, this is brilliant. Well, thank you, Gordon, and uh, thank you. Have a great okay. weekend. Take care. You too. Bye. All right, mate. Bye. Bye. Cheers. Bye.